Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Life and football are very similar. Without an identity, you will not achieve your ultimate prize. Defense wants championships. Pride and passion meet success. You gotta love what you do. Thank you for listening to the East West Football Podcast with Jerry Martinez, Kendall Whitley, and now here is your host, Fidel Barraza. But we got the right guy for the Cleveland Browns. Um, he is smart. He's tough. He's confident. He's competitive. Um, he's been a head coach before. He's got a great offensive mind. He's got a tremendous track record developing quarterbacks. Um, I'm going to say this again because you'll see it when you hear from him and you'll see it when you're around him. He is very, very competitive. He understands the AFC North. He's been a part of the AFC North, and I think he's going to be a great head coach for the Cleveland Browns. Uh, Hugh is going to bring a toughness uh, and certainly an experience uh, in terms of bringing the winning back to Cleveland that we set out to accomplish. So we're happy that we accomplished that goal. And so for the dog pound, for our players, I am really pleased to introduce Hugh Jackson as the next head coach of the Cleveland Browns. I came here to win. I came here to help our team have an opportunity to win football games, and we're not going to care about where we play. We understand the AFC North. We understand who we have to play outside our division, and they're really good football teams, and we expect to have a, a really good football team here. Thank you for listening to a very special edition of the East West Football Podcast. I am your host, Fidel Barraza, and alongside with me, like always, Jerry Martinez and Kendall Whitley. There are always two sides to a story. Joining us tonight to tell us his side is former NFL head coach Hugh Jackson. Thank you so much for joining us, coach. Thank you for having me. All right, coach. Let's hear your side of the story. Uh, what happened with the Cleveland Browns? Well, thank you, Fidel, and hello to Kendall and, and Jerry. <clears throat> you know, I think it was time for me to have an opportunity to go on record uh, with uh, telling my side of the story and um, really trying to move on from it while at the same time helping some other minority coaches as they start to come up through the ranks so that hopefully they never have to deal with some of the things I dealt with. You know, the, my last day uh, at Cleveland when I was fired, I probably should say the very next day, there was a statement that came out that talked about internal discord. And that came from obviously Jimmy Haslam, I mean, that to me was like a nuclear bomb, you know, that destroyed my name, my reputation, uh, my career. And, uh, and Jimmy was the one that dropped that bomb. And by the way, you know, he later texted me because I texted him and asked why say that? Because that wasn't the case. Um, and he said uh, that comment was taken out of context. 
and that he didn't mean for it to come across that way. But my, my whole thing is how do you come back from that? You know, how do you come back from being one in 31 as a second time head coach in the NFL? And then how do you defend yourself as a human who happens to be a black guy? You know, it, that's tough, you know, and the only thing you have left is the fight. Uh, when you feel like your career has been taken and people have kind of used you and, and left you out in front of everybody to just take it all on, at some point in time, you got to make a decision. Do you fight or what do you do? And again, I'm just so tired of people saying that I don't take responsibility for my record with the Browns. Uh, well, you guys can repeat this and repost this as much as you want. I take responsibility for my part. I take responsibility for believing in the integrity of the game respect and team. I take my res responsibility for always standing up for what was right, even if no one outside of the building knew it. I take responsibility for believing in the coaches and players and their desires and effort to win. I take responsibility for giving coaches their opportunity to build their careers. I take responsibility for always working with my players and help them get ready for the next play, the next day, and the next game. I take responsibility for having the hard conversations with people in private so everything didn't have to take place in public. And I also take responsibility uh, for some of my best coaching during 2016 and 2017, even though my record stands at 1-31. Now, that record just isn't my record, but most people think I'm the only one who's responsible for that record. My coaches, they worked extremely hard, and they're stuck with that record, too even though they did their best for the team. The players, they're also stuck with that record, even though they showed up, worked hard, and played hard. You know, we all gave our best for each other and for the fans. And I think people who don't understand that and understand where this all came from and how this started. So, we, you know, it's like going to the end to get back to the beginning. In 2018, when I was let go, you know, there was internal discord. There was a whole lot of, you know, back and forth going on between uh, an organization that I believed wanted me to come there and win. Because all people have to do is go look at the press conference, right? I mean, I don't know if you had a chance to do that, but the press conference tells you what was told to me. Does that make sense at all? Yes, and I actually did get a chance to see that. And, you know, what, what stood out to me the most was that you went there to win, not to lose. You took the job because you felt you had the opportunity to win there in Cleveland. Absolutely. Well, Fidel, I think no coach, no coach in his right mind would ever take a job to lose, right? And I, I think for me, myself, I think people have to understand and walk back with me to where I was. You got to remember, I was the head coach of the Oakland Raiders at the time, who are now the Las Vegas Raiders. You go eight and eight, Al Davis passed, Mark Davis makes a change, I get fired. You know, I had one of the top offenses in the league at that particular point in time. Even with Carson Palmer, we were 10th in the league. Uh, we went 8-8, eight and eight, lost some games down the stretch that we maybe shouldn't have lost, barely missed the playoffs, and out I go. Uh, not many coaches I know get fired after going uh, 500 and barely miss making the playoffs. You know, not only was I fired, I couldn't get a job in NFL, whether it was being a head coach again, offense coordinator, quarterback coach, nothing so my job was to go to Cincinnati and be an assistant special teams coach to be an assistant uh defensive back coach think about that now I was a head coach of a team that went eight and eight had a top offense in the league 
and I can't find a job. So that right there has to tell you something. Well, why am I saying that? I'm saying that because when I work my way back off of that side of ball, being on defense to coaching on offense, starting back as a running back coach, being elevated to the coordinator and becoming pro football's uh, offensive coach of the year in 2015. And I did all that with the, with the thought is I'm going to put myself back in position to have another opportunity to do it again, to become a head coach. But I hope everybody understand going through the path and the things I had to go through, I wasn't going to take a job where I was going to lose. There was two things that were very important to me, which I shared with the Cleveland organization. I needed to win and I needed to win immediately. I also need to do something that no one else thought anybody could do, which was winning Cleveland, change the culture and winning Cleveland. Well, Coach, let, let's talk about the, the start, right? So whenever you're interviewing for the Cleveland Browns job, what were some of the things that were promised to you? What was promised to me and what was laid out, and like I said, people can look in the press conference, that, number one, they were going to do everything they could to put me in a position to win. They would give me every resource needed. We were going to get a GM. We were going to do – we had draft capital. We had cash. We would do whatever it took to get the organization to win it. And I think you guys know, organizations don't hire coaches because they're, they're winning, they hire them because they're losing. So you don't make decisions to bring in coaches if, if, if all of a sudden you're not trying to change the culture and get it to winning. So that's what was told to me and that's why I made the decision to go there. Let's talk about the first season you were the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. What was promised to you? The 2016 season was, was really hard. You know, when you uh, think about uh, being one and 15, we didn't win a regular season game until late in the year. Uh, and it was really hard. The hard part was I had been in an organization that I, I knew what winning looked like. I knew what winning players looked like. I knew what winning culture looked like. And I'm trying to do everything I can to create it. But what I didn't see is the alignment and the vision and the collaboration from the executive side to my side. And when I talk about the executive side, I'm talking about Sashi Brown, Paul D. Podesta, Andrew Berry, and ownership. Uh, they, to me, had a vision on how they were going to do things, and it wasn't what was explained to me in my interview process. And that was definitely not being played out in the 2016 season. So obviously, you know, we start into that season. Things are not going great. Uh, we're we're struggling, be very honest. And I, I could feel some of that and see some of that was coming because I could see in the preseason that we just didn't have enough talent. And I think at the same time, I think everybody felt that and knew that. Uh, but I think people thought we were going to be able to coach around that. In the National Football League, you should have enough talent to be in games. I mean, it's a, it's a league that's set up for everybody really to be 8-8 eight eight at the end of the day. But if you don't coach very well, and if you don't have the talent to coach, it's a whole different game. When do you start to notice that things are not like they've told you that they were going to be? Well, I, I can go all the way back to the first time, and I forget the young man's name, that we put um, a young a, a tight end on the team. I forget his name, but he's a, a young player, and I'll go back and get his name. But uh, I never forget the tight end coach at the time, Greg Seaman, coming to me and said, hey, we're about to put a tight end on the team. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, there's a guy that we're going to uh, put on the team, and do you know about it? I go, no. 
So he told me, and I, I did. I got a little pissed off about it and said, I uh, went to the draft room where they were, opened the door, and I said, Sasha, what, what are you doing? Uh, uh, I was going to get to you. I mean, what do you mean get to me? You're making a decision about putting a guy on my team that I know nothing about. But yet you talk to the tight end coach, but not to me. I knew then that the lines of communication and how they were going to do things were totally different than what I thought. And then you move into free agency. Then all of a sudden players, and if you, you're a coach and you guys have seen it with other coaches, you leave a team, you become a head coach. Normally some of the players that that coach had ends up on that, the new roster because they are guys who know your system. They know how you do things. And all of a sudden I'm not getting anybody. The Marvin Joneses, the most news, and those were positions that we need to get better at. And not only were we not getting those guys, we were losing one of the best offensive lines, what I thought was the top five offensive line in all of pro football at the time. It was one of the biggest reasons why I took the job. There's Alex Mack, there's Schwartz, there's Joe Thomas, Joe Batonio, Greco, and we tore that thing down. And so what I really went to Cleveland for believing I was going to have this top offensive line was now gone as well. <laughs> and so now, you know, there's the Johnny Menzel situation. He's now gone. You're going to need a quarterback. All these things are starting to happen. And that wasn't what I saw. And that's not what I was feeling when we were going through the interview process. So after the season's over, you guys have a meeting yourself, the GM, the owner, the front office. What are some things that they promise you going into year two of coaching the Browns? Well, I think we still have to go back because before that season started, it was a draft. You know, here comes a draft. We talked about free agency. Here comes a draft. And I think you guys always saw that it was said that we we're going to take shots at quarterbacks. Okay. So we have the second pick of the draft. We trade out of that, that position. And there's Carson Wentz, Jared Goff, who myself and Kelp Helmutson went to go work out. We never went to go work out, Cody Kessler. Cody Kessler was drafted in the third round as, as a quarterback that was going to be a huge part of our football team. I never uh, agreed with that. Uh, it was really interesting because I'm always tied to the statement of just trust me on this. And I'm being very honest with you because I did not know what to say. If I said I didn't want him, I immediately create a, a, a ripple in my building and I look not collaborative. If I say I too want him, then all of a sudden people say, well, then you're tying yourself to this guy. And so I just said, you guys just got to trust me. And I did that just trying to move on from it as fast as I could, because I wanted to talk really about the other guys, because if anybody knew me when it came to quarterbacks, they would have known that's not the type of athletic quarterback with skill that I would draft. And more so than that, people got to understand I wasn't in charge of the draft. That was not my role. As a head coach, that was not in my contract. So wh whose call was it to draft Cody Kessler? That was uh, Sashi Brown and the executive team. And that year in the draft, who was the quarterback that you did want to draft? Well, when you look at it, I mean, Carson Wentz and Jared Goff were the two top quarterbacks. And, and to me, if people don't understand, even if you miss, you got to take a shot at the guys that are supposed to be the best that are in the draft. You have to, unless you have a, if you have an experience process that's going to lead you to the best guy. And people got to understand Cody Kessler was drafted before Dak Prescott. <laughs> you know, so when you look at this, you have to understand this, that, that was tough. 
So now I have a quarterback that, I mean, that I wasn't really tied to it. And I love the person. I don't, Cody Kessler is a really good person and he's done some good things in the league, but it wasn't what I was trying to accomplish and what our staff was trying to accomplish. So how difficult was that for you to have a quarterback that you did not want to, you know, draft, be on your team and kind of say, well, this is what kind of what we have to work with. That was very hard. I mean, because I didn't understand how it got there. You know, when you look at it, it you're talking about a third round draft, drafted player on your team. We're not talking about a seventh round pick, or a third round pick. That, that, that's a player that's going to contribute to your team. And I just, I was struggling with that. But again, I couldn't come out and create immediate confusion about what was going on behind closed doors. I had to deal with it the best I could. I had to go find a way to coach this young man and get him better. And obviously he played a lot of football for us that, that year. But at the same time, uh, he wasn't the answer uh, for the organization. What was the atmosphere going into year two um, uh, of you being the head coach of the Cleveland Browns? Well, it was uh, still filled with, in my opinion, um, we were not aligned correctly because we weren't aligned from the start. Because everything that was told to me, uh, Fidel and Jerry and Kendall from the beginning was not happening. None of those things were, were coming out that way. You know, people think that they know what my duties were as a head coach. And some even think that they know what my contract terms were. But I can assure you that they don't. Until now, most people didn't even know that, you know, even through 2017, you know, losing 23 games after being 1-15, because you mentioned now 2017, I was given a contract extension by the owners. You know, and I'm willing to bet that no one knew that Jimmy praised me for doing an excellent coaching job in 2016. Think about that now. I won only one game in that season, and he praised my work as a coach. And I was given a contract extension in 2017, halfway through the season. Does that make sense to you guys? Why do you think that the contract extension talk never came out? Because I don't think he could put it out, because then it would say that they were doing something wrong. You know, if you go and say, well, we gave you an extension, well, everybody would say, why are you doing that? Here's a coach that won any games. And then it would be easier to see exactly what was going on there. I mean, you go back to the statement that Sashi made in 2016 um, when he said, we're not trying to win. We're not concentrating on things. And that turned into a huge issue. He had to stand before the team and have a conversation about that because no players or coach we, we're working to win. We're not interested in anything else. This is about winning for us. Nothing more, nothing less. Let's talk about the second season you're the Browns head coach. So we're heading into 2017 um, after a 1-15 season. Uh, obviously, we still have our quarterback issues. Um, at the time on our roster, um, we had uh, uh, traded for Oswalder from, from Houston. Um, obviously, we had uh, Kevin Hogan, uh, Cody Kessler, and um, I knew we needed to continue to upgrade the position. What I don't think people understand that if you draft a quarterback with high draft capital, that quarterback probably is going to be in the starter because you have Kevin Hogan, who was a free agent acquisition, Cody Kessler, who was a third round pick, but you knew that he wasn't happy. Uh, with him being your starting quarterback. So whoever you put on the team is going to be the starter. 
when we drafted Deshaun Kaiser, that meant that we were going to have potentially uh, without Brock Oswalder, if he wasn't going to be there, we're going to have three quarterbacks who had never won a game in the national football. League. And so that's the way the season started out. We had three quarterbacks who had never won a game in the national football league. And I just don't know what people thought, you know, we were going to have that much improvement. Did we improve in some areas? Absolutely. We did. There was some better offensive linemen that we put on the team because the quarterbacks were getting just smashed in 2016. So I saw some immediate improvement, but what I didn't see was still the commitment that it took to turn the organization around. And, and why do you say that? Well, go to year 2018 and look how much the team flipped and how much talent was put on the team in order to get to winning. So it was like we were still in that second phase of their system of, boy, let's make sure that we continue to not be as good as we need to be because we need to continue to get this draft capital and have this cash so we can get this team the way they wanted to get it, not the way I wanted to get it. How, how did you see your relationship with John Dorsey and ownership in the front office in that second year coaching the Browns? I thought when John Dorsey first came in, I thought the relationship was great. I mean, he went on record and said, I'm just not the coach. We got to get this guy players. He made that statement. I did. And I thought he was being very honest and forthcoming about that. And he was. I mean, here we are. He put infused more talent on the team heading into the 2018 season. Okay. He came in the last four games of the 2017 season. And again, that's the same year where I get this contract extension. So I'm thinking things are going to trend in the right direction. I'm like, I finally exhale. I, I, I wanted to quit pushing so much back up against what was going on and what people have to understand. I was pushing so hard because I wanted to get the winning. I needed to win. My staff needed to win. The players needed to win. I know as a leader, you can't keep standing in front of men and asking them to give you their all when you're not getting any results. I mean, that's just too hard to do. And so uh, John was, was, was a good find at that time because he went out and got some very talented players to put on the team. So you guys go 0 and 16, obviously very difficult to do. What other, what other things stands out to you about that season? Well, uh, that probably was the hardest. I mean, obviously 2016 was, was really hard. 2017 was just as hard because the players worked extremely hard, but they we just didn't have enough. We just, and, and you knew it, you could see it. And the players knew it. And you're not going to fool these guys. They knew something else was going on behind the scenes that they had no control of, but they, they weren't going to push too much like most players won't because they don't want to lose their value too. But if we think that these players don't know that the organization was in a situation where they wasn't really trying to win, when you let go Joe Hayden, Demario Davis, you let certain players go off your team, off your roster, it says to you that you're not trying to win at a high level. And I, I think, uh, we, you know, you can fool some people, but you're not going to fool these players. Do you recall when you, when you thought to yourself that, like, hey, you know what, like, this is an actual rebuild. They're not, they're not trying to win right now. They're trying to win later. Like, when did, you, when did you feel like that was going on? I finally started to uh, understand it, that this wasn't what I signed up for. 
in the 2016 year. And I could see it carrying over to the 2017 year. And that was the hardest thing ever because I, I could see that we were getting a little bit better in some areas, but not good enough as a team to where we can really improve the record. And to me, that was really hard. It was really hard for me. It was really hard for the coaches. And it was really hard for some players too, because I'm going to say it again, you can't fool them. So let's talk about the 2018 draft. So you guys have the first overall pick. Uh, obviously, you guys are planning on going quarterback. So let's talk a little bit, you know, what went into actually selecting Baker May uh, Mayfield first overall. No, I, I thought that was a, a real collaborative decision. It might have been the true first collaborative decision that, that I had been involved in there. Um, uh, my first year, 2016, that was not a collaborative decision on the quarterback. And 2017, that was not a collaborative decision on the quarterback. 2018, I felt like it's because, again, John, uh, John Dorsey's a football guy. I mean, we spent the time with Baker, understanding Baker, understanding what he brought to the table, understanding his personality and how it would really benefit, um, you know, the city of Cleveland. And so uh, he was the right pick and everybody was all in on him. So I, I felt really good about it. So that season, you guys were on uh, HBO's Hard Knocks. Tell us a little bit uh, about that. Uh, yeah, we were on uh, HBO Hard Knocks. And, and again, I made the decision for the team to uh, be a part of that because I thought, honestly, Fidel, that we were a loss-averse organization. I thought there had been so much losing that had gone on that in order to change everything, players needed to be at their best all the time. So part of my strategy was for HBO, uh, I mean, for the series for Hard Knocks to be there was it was going to create an environment because one thing you know about players, they don't like to be embarrassed. You know, they don't want to do that. So I thought the team would, would gel faster. And, and, and I thought we did really work extremely hard. I think the plan was working. What we need to do is win that first game against Pittsburgh. But I really enjoyed, I didn't have a problem with them being there. I think the biggest problem was obviously there was a scene where there was a conversation between myself and, and two new coaches on the staff about guys, soft tissue injuries. And people to this day really don't understand that you don't have those conversations. Then you have already had those things about injuries. You have those before you ever start into training camp. So you know how, because practice plans are done way ahead, how you're going to practice is done way ahead. And I thought that question was asked to kind of put me in a situation to where uh, people wanted to challenge certain things. And I have no problem with that. But when I pushed back and said, I'm the head coach, people had a problem with that. Like, you don't need to say that. Yeah, you do. Some People have no idea what goes on in meeting rooms across the National Football League. They, they, have, no, they have no clue. And so if that's what everybody was worried about, then they, they don't get it. Your, your relationship with Todd Haley, obviously those are one of the things that stood out that year. How would you sum that up? It's not, it wasn't good. Let me first tell you that it was the worst decision I ever made. And I say that because I gave up something that was near and dear to my heart, the offense. So, I mean, I gave him total control. I thought I needed to do that if he was going to be on the staff. And I look back at that and that was one of the biggest things I regret. Your relationship with Baker Mayfield, 
you know, I mean, it's been played out, uh, you know, in uh, the media and, and the things he said and the way he's acted. I, you know, again, I've never held any of that against Baker because here was a young man that came to a team. Uh, he's looking at a coach at one, one game in 30, in 32 tries, you know, and he, here's the Heisman Trophy winner and he walks in and uh, he goes, wow, you know, He's used to winning. I get it. I understand what he was feeling, but at the same time, some of the things I think he was feeling, I think that was kind of pushed uh, on him from different directions. And uh, because I did not coach him personally, I didn't spend the time with him that I have been spending with the quarterbacks prior to me relinquishing um, top becoming the office coordinator. Coach, let's talk about your last season as the head coach of the Browns, 2018. So you go into training camp, Tyrod Taylor's your starting quarterback, Baker Mayfield's the backup. Yes, so we go into the 2018 season, Tyrod Taylor's the starter. Uh, we had pursued Tyrod in, in free agency. Uh, Tyrod was coming off of a, you know, an unbelievable year in Buffalo, get into the playoffs. We were very unsettled at the quarterback position. So you look at the years before, we talked about having three players that never won a game in the National Football League. So immediately, you bring in Tyrod, he becomes a starter. It's a commitment we as an organization made to him. The next reason why that commitment stayed that way is because we know who the left tackle is going to be. Joe Thomas had retired. But we knew here we are taking Baker Mayfield with the first pick of the draft. That was the quarterback we wanted, but no way were we going to put him out there and put him in a position to fail. We didn't know who that left tackle was going to be. At least Tyrod had athleticism. He could run around. He could do some extra things. The change was we also had a new quarterback. That's where, to me, some things really got out of, got out of sequence. Um, and Baker knew. I, kept, I was very honest and forthcoming with Baker. I told him that, you know, he would not be the starter to begin with. But eventually, you know, we'll see where this thing went. But he did win the backup role. And it was really interesting. People don't know. There was coaches on the offensive staff that did not want Baker to be the backup. I made Baker the backup. I made that to say, I didn't know what I saw in practice. I made him the backup quarterback. Because we had other coaches that did want him to be the backup quarterback. And so we move on and go from there. And obviously Tyrod gets hurt. And Baker becomes a starter and the rest is history. But it happened to me the way it should have happened. You can't be a head coach and name a, a starter in Tyrod Taylor and then take some away from him when you've never played a game. You, you can't do that. Especially when the organization had been very inconsistent in everything they had been doing. So I needed to be able to do that and do it the right way. All right, coach. So then Tyrod gets hurt. Baker Mayfield um, replaces him. And I believe it's a Thursday night football game, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. correct? Against the New York Jets. So Tyrod gets hurt. Baker comes in, leads us to a victory. And he's been a starting quarterback there ever since. And it just, it happened the right way. It didn't happen because all of a sudden Tyrod was playing bad. Hickory Baker needed to come in the game. Tyrod got hurt, but Baker went in and played extremely well, showed his talent. And then the rest was history. So then after he's a starter, how would you say that his demeanor towards you changes? I thought it changed tremendously. Uh, I, I, there was one time I brought him into the office uh, when he wasn't starting. And we would watch tape together. But now I, I didn't feel like I needed to do that because he needed 
you know, all the time that he needed to, in order to prepare for the game with the staff, the quarterback coach, with the coordinator. And so I kind of got away from that. And I just thought things started to really change. And I wasn't being anybody different than who I've always been, you know? So to this day, I'll never understand it. I'll never, um, uh, probably won't ever find that answer. But at the same, same time, I'm not concerned about it. So this season or that season, you, you get let go by the Browns. Tell us about how they told you and uh, what was – I mean, did they give you, or when did you know that possibly like, Hey, this might happen to me? Well, I knew something was going to happen because I was told I'm not going to dive into that. You guys will have to read that in my book, but I know what I was told. And uh, I thought it wasn't going to go against me. I thought I would still be there. I was told by John Dorsey and Jimmy Haslam, but I was told by John Dorsey, I'd lost the team. And that's where the infamous get out of my office came from and I did say that I'm not going to run from that it was not the professional thing to do or say but finally I had had enough you know I've I've stood in front of this thing for two years for that organization taking it nobody else took that but me for two years being one in 15 being 0 in 16 you know people telling me what I can say what I couldn't say how I needed to portray these things, how I needed to be collaborative and act like everything was okay. My gosh. And now at a time where we've been in four overtime games, the team's playing better. I have shown you that the problem is on offense. I mean, I, I went to the, uh, the ownership and the executive team and showed we have a problem on offense, something that I'm good at doing. I had made a statement in, after the Tampa Bay game that I wanted to help on the offensive side of the ball, get that better and get it fixed. And I was told that I was overstepping my bounds. I'm the head coach of the team. And I'm, I'm told I shouldn't be doing that. Are you kidding me? And it's what I know. And so then here they come and tell me, and Jimmy says, I'm going to let you go. And I did. I said to Jimmy, you got to be kidding me. All I sit up there and took for you for two years, and now you're going to let me go? And you've done nothing that you told me you were going to do. You never told the public that you gave me a contract extension. You never told the public that, hey, look at here. What went on here had nothing to do with you. This was a plan that we put in place. And he was just the face of it and had to deal with it. And now you're going to sit here and tell me that I'm out? For what? When we had no players in 2016 and 2017 to get to winning, now we have a team that has a chance to win. And now you're going to, I'm, I'm gone. That made no sense to me. And on top of, like I said, losing my brother, my mother, and here I am dealing with this. I could not, it could not have happened at a, at a worse time, but that's the way these things go, uh, Fidel and Jerry and Kendall, because these things that look like whatever term you want to put on it, the people that started never finish it. They can't. It's just too many losses. And the fans and everybody else see it as you. You have to wear it, not that everybody else is wearing it with you. And that's why it's it's really hurting because you look where Sasha, I mean, you look where Paul is, you look where AB is. Even Sasha has a job at the Washington Wizards. I mean, I, I'm sitting on the sidelines. I, I'm finding things here and there. I mean, that's ridiculous. Wow, Cody, that's some deep insight there. And I appreciate you, you know, coming on and, and telling us that. 
Um, I want to go go a little deeper. How do you feel that you yourself in the Browns organization, the ownership and all that y'all, how you feel y'all handled the Josh Gordon situation during these few years there? The Josh Gordon situation, I think we, again, I thought we did a good job of that. I know we did a good job of that because we tried to create an environment for him to be better. We tried to give him every opportunity to be a part of the football team. Uh, and I think Josh knew that. I mean, we, we walked hand in hand with him through it all. Uh, it just didn't work. And it might have been just the environment because he was in it and used to it. It just didn't work. But I felt very good about what we tried to do for the player. At what point did you know, like, you know, this is not going to work, you know, with Josh or whatnot? And you just, you just know that y'all would probably have to move on. I know during your final season, y'all traded him to the Patriots or whatnot. I want to say after the first couple of games. But, like, yeah. what, is that the point? At what point did you know, like, you know, we probably we're going to have to, you know, just move on from him? Well, I, 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 that was a conversation that I had had with Josh. And I mm-hmm. moved the football team. You couldn't keep moving in and out as a player. You know, you're there one minute, you're out the next. And as I told you, we tried to do everything we could to help Josh. I remember even spending a Friday with Josh going to a, a movie, you know, just to be able to help him get through. And he was there for the first mm-hmm. game and then we are going to the next game. And now here's an issue, you know, so mm-hmm. yeah, he's a grown man. You can't coddle men. They have to make the right decision. But I just knew after that, that episode that happened right before we got ready, I believe to go to Oakland. I just knew it was time to move on. Do you feel that the Cleveland Browns organization as a whole is in good hands now with Kevin Stefanski and the new ownership they have there now? I know they are, and they should be. I mean, mm-hmm. this was all part of their plan. You know, the, mm-hmm. the plan was, I mean, if you really look back at it, is not to be very good for two years, okay, and then start to get progressively better. The problem is that I don't think nobody understands is the people who get left behind for being in those, that losing those first two years, of being one in 31. And if you really look at the plan, you needed to not win very many games. And that's probably what my biggest disappointment is. I look now and people say, well, everybody knew there was gonna be a teardown. I, I never knew that. So if it was a teardown, then why is everybody so pissed at me? Why am I suffering at the hands of what they said they wanted to do and, and it was done? So I, I should be seen as a God, just like Sashi, I mean, like Paul, Sashi, and A.B. I mean, and what I don't really understand is two of the guys who were instrumental in the process are still there at the Browns today and running the organization. That, how does that work? Right. Antonio Callaway, he's another, he's another um, player you know, from Florida or whatnot that had a similar path like Josh Gordon that, um, that, y'all, that you got with the Browns. How do you fit? How was he as, as a person? He was awesome with me. I had no issues with Antonio Callaway. We have, I shouldn't say none. We had one thing that came up uh, and we dealt with it. And I mm-hmm. thought he, he was, he was moving in the right direction. You know, I'm surprised that, you know, he fell out, but at the same time, you had to have somebody that could really connect with him and make sure he kept moving forward. Hey coach. Um, I want to take it back to 2017 in that draft, y'all had two first-round draft picks. Um, y'all clearly hit on one with Miles Garrett, and then the other one you had was Jabril Peppers. Why do you, why do you think Jabril? Why do you, why do you think it didn't, it didn't work in Cleveland for him? Was it like a scheme fit? Like what, what was it? I think it's, it was probably more that than anything. Uh, I think Jabril is a very talented player with an unbelievable skill set, but he is 
very good being around the football. Uh, being at the, in the deep safety position, I think he knows uh, how to do it. But I think where his, it's just like anything, it's about fit, right, for most players. And I think his fit was being able to play closer to the ball and, and blitz and, and cover and do all those things. Yeah, I also took David and Joku in that in that draft as well. I he clear you know he clearly has the talent. I just don't think he's gotten the most out of it in Cleveland. Do you think um he maybe he would he would do better with on another team, another another system or whatnot? Or you or do you think he just it's just it's all about with David just bringing out himself? Well, I think it's about everybody. Uh, it it's David, I think you have to give him opportunities to do what he does. Uh, you know, when I had him that first year, David was at one time, the leading touchdown receiver as a rookie. And then we, not that we got away from it, people started to understand when he was in the game, what he was trying to do. So I think David has talent. I think they got to continue to tap into it. I think there's some things he will say himself he needs to do better. Uh, but I think he's still on the team for a reason, and hopefully he'll get going this year. Appreciate it. Um, during the 2018 season, right, right before it started, I know during training camp, Y'all had hard knocks and y'all brought in Dez Bryant for a visit. Did you um why do you, and I know he was kind of procrastinating and going back and forth on whether he should sign and whether he should even come in for a visit or whatnot. Why do you think he ultimately it took him after he came in for a visit? Why do you think he didn't sign? Was it because of the quarterback position, the uncertainty there? No, I, I don't think so. I think there was a, a contractual things from what I know. I mean, that that needed to happen that didn't happen. Um again, I mean Again, the guy knew what his value was, and maybe you didn't see it the same way that he did, and uh, it just didn't work out at that time. Okay, I've been wanting to get answers on that for a long time. I appreciate that, Coach. <laughs> you got it, buddy. <laughs> Coach, do you still talk to uh, Sashi Brown? No. Um, what about uh, Dorsey? No. So let me let me ask you this. I mean – I mean, what do you feel that this money ball approach that Paul D is uh, uh, taking? Do you feel that this will eventually work for? Will this bring a, a a championship to the dog pound? I don't know that it'll bring a championship, but it has worked. I mean, because if you look at it, you know, in its entirety, it's it's two years of sucking at the expense of whoever at the careers of whoever, then you start an upward trend because you have now had an opportunity to put enough talented players, young players on the team. Uh, you got to still draft the right players in order for that to, to work because you have premium talent and you got to pick the right players. And um, that started to happen. And they've done a great job in free agency. I think they have a really good coaching staff. I think they're doing things more through the coach's eyes now than ever before uh, i think like i said I, I really believe in 2016 2017 that was an experiment in real time to find out what they needed to do in order to be successful in the future and to me what bothers me the most they didn't care who was gone they didn't care what careers were going to get uh, taken away based on what they were doing i think you, Jer- said, you said it Jer- right because sashi only lasted one year yeah, but Jared, even take that in another, think about what you just asked, Paul D's deal. Paul D was there in 2016 and 2017. Yes, he has. And it, so I'm asking, how can those guys escape the wrath of that? They're now leading the organization. Yeah. And, but nobody nobody ever says, well, they just said, well, the, 
we learned. What did you learn? What do you mean? Why did it even need to be teared down? Talking about the team, it was already tore down. You, you, you wouldn't play well. You didn't have to go dump everybody. I mean, there is more of another strategic way. Every team in the National Football League doesn't just go and take it to the bones and start all over. You, you can't do that because of the integrity of the game and the shield. You can't, you're not supposed to be able to do that. But, that, but that's what's done. And nobody ever challenges anybody at that. I think that, that when we see what we've seen, I mean, the Browns, now, of course, we've seen, like, like what you said, it's a collection of first-round draft picks. But like you said, at what expense? And, I mean, even – I mean, I, I've, I've never been one to talk bad about any owner. But, I mean, that owner, I mean, he's not as innocent as, you know – I mean, he's just up there with all, all the other owners, right? As far yeah. as saying one thing but then providing something different to their fans, to their community, to that team, you know what I mean? And like yeah. you said, they could have they they they, in essence, they've hindered, uh, maybe even ruined some careers, and uh, it was it's been it was very evident to see like uh, everything break down. It was just like wow, this is this is nuts. That they almost make Cleveland Browns like I mean, we wouldn't even pay attention to the Cleveland Browns anymore because we were just like that's just a mess. But right now everybody does, yeah. so that's why I say the system worked. You know, and I and they should be succeeding. I mean, but it took a lot of blood, sweat, and tears from other people and hurt for them to get to where they are. Like I said, if you're gonna do that, just come out and say that's what you're doing. Let everybody know. Make sure the coach you know that you hire, you tell them that's what you're gonna do. And then he gets to make a decision. I didn't have to go to Cleveland. I could have stayed in Cincinnati, but I sure wouldn't have taken a job to where I thought I was gonna lose my value the day I walked in the door. Not as a minority coach, the second opportunity and haven't already been fired at eight and eight. And that's why I get disappointed. People say, well, he knew what they were going to try to do. How, what? How? <laughs> There's no way. I would never do it. And people talk about money. It's not about money. I'm not, you're going to make money as a coach regardless of what you're doing. You don't make money when you're not coaching. So I'm not going to do that to my career. So that makes no sense. Coach, so... I mean, I know you said that Dorsey and Haslam had told you that you were good. But after you said that you, you know, wanted to see about helping out the offense, was it at that moment or did you feel the whole 2018 season you were walking on eggshells? Because, I mean, we, we, all, we, know, we all know how that feels, right? So, so I'm just – I guess I did. I did, Jerry. I felt like 2018, I was walking on eggshells. I think the day I gave up the offense, I gave up me. I really do. I thought because that was my baby. And so that was the hardest part of what I was doing. I had to kind of remove myself and spend more time over on the defense because I felt like I couldn't, if I hired a person and brought him in, he needed to have that environment with the coaches and the players to get the best out of them. And all I was going to do is cause an issue because that is my specialty. And I felt the whole time because I didn't have my hand in it, that it just wasn't what I thought it should be based on the amount of talent we had, based on the, the players that we had and based on the schematics of it all. Why, what is it that, that the, these, these, you know, GMs or let's just say owners cannot just, Give the head coaches exactly what they need. Well, uh, the, the good teams do. 
because when you hire a coach, you bring him in and you're going to buy his vision. That's why you hire him, right? Yeah. I mean, when you hire a guy, you know, this is his specialty was an offense, defense, or special team. So you know what you're getting that way. And normally when the vision is coming together, you're trying to do everything you can to make the coach successful, not the GM. But I've always said when you add people to things, that's when it changes. And if you don't have the right people sharing the same goals and the same vision and the alignment and the collaboration, it doesn't work. So let's take that a step further. 2016, 2017, Hugh Jackson said he came to what? Win. Win. So you're not going to give me Cody Kessler and talk about winning. Yeah, I mean, that's just not fair, right? Let's just be honest. You're not going to walk into a 2017 season and have not one quarterback on your roster that's never won a game. You're not going to do that. I mean, watch how fast in 2018 there was a pivot and you just went and got Tyrod Taylor. Regardless of what Baker Mayfield was, you went and got a guy who had won games and been to the playoffs. Okay, so that's what's so amazing to this that in my mind, nobody wanted to see what 2016, 2017 was that led to 2018. And what your question, go back to your question, why doesn't that happen? I think sometimes owners are easily swayed by other people. You know, that owner that who gets to them last, you know, that all of a sudden, boy, this sounds good. In order for these coaches to be successful, you have to give them what they need. And I'll challenge anybody again. When I left Cincinnati to go to Cleveland, there was no Marvin Jones on my team. There was no Moses New on my team. There was no Jeremy Hill on my team. Terrell Pryor was my receiver to have over a thousand yards. You know, go look at those rosters. Go find out where those players are today. And I think everybody would be shocked. But people will say, well, we knew they wasn't trying to win. What do you mean you're not trying to win? That that's unheard of in the National Football League. No, for sure. Let's go back to the introduction, all right, uh, where they br- they bring you in, they name you the head coach. It, it's very clear and evident how you how you clearly state it. We're here to win. So for you for for you to say that you know it's a tear down and all this stuff, it's 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 kind of it's kind of unique, right, to see that because you clearly stated that in your introduction press conference as you're saying. We're here to win. You know, you're going to go back. You're going to watch the tape on all the players that you have and and see where the improvements need to be made, right? And um, But in, uh, what I was trying to say before that, I go, it's, it's, it's very unique, your situation, because we actually got to see this on HBO Hard Knocks, too. Uh, man, you went through so much. I mean, and uh, well, th- a couple questions come to, to, to me. Uh, Number one, what did you what did you learn most about yourself during all this, you know, uh, unclarity, right? Because that's the thing that uh, it looks like that you had to deal a lot with. Well, Jerry, it was it was tough. What I learned about myself is that uh, 2018 probably was the toughest year of my life. Because not only was I dealing with the football side of it, I lost my brother. Uh, heading into training camp. I lost my mother two weeks after that, after training camp started. And now I'm going to lose my job later on. So that was very, very tough all along while dealing with 
all the stuff I was dealing with in 2016, 2017, because it still goes back to just what you said at the press conference. I came to win. Yeah, you nope. said it. If I didn't say, I mean, if I was told something different, you think I could have stood up in front of everybody at a press conference and say, I'm here to win and that we're going to do what it takes to win and we're going to have the resources and we're going to have uh, GM and all these things. There, there's no way. And there's no way, as I said earlier, as a minority, the second opportunity, could I be taking a job that potentially was not going to have me win it? I just can't do it. That makes no sense. And that's why I don't understand why people can't see. And it's just, it's just really interesting to me because people sometimes don't know, you know, what really happens in big businesses. You know, what you think it is, is not really what it is. What goes on behind closed doors and the conversations that get had, the, what, what the public sees is totally different. What oh, you yeah. really know is happening is, is really happening and I'm in it. And I'm trying to do everything I can to get to winning because I owe it to my staff, owe it to the players, I owe it to the fans, I owe it to others in the organization. But I can't do it on my own. In order for coaches to be successful, you have to give them what they need to be successful. Let, let me ask you something. Did you have, I mean, I know you've always had a great relationship with, with many coaches in, in the league, but did you ever have any mentor uh, during this whole ordeal or process that, Maybe checked in on you on a daily because I mean, like you said, I mean a brother, mother, and I mean, like you said, I mean this stuff is piling up. I mean, you always, I think that that's one of the one of the biggest things I've learned is like, man, having a true friend, right? Just to call sometimes and just talk. I mean, did you yeah. have any any mentor that 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 really helped you out, or was it was it one of those things where it just like people kind of were too busy with their worlds? Well, no, I had uh, I had one in particular. His name was Dr. Tommy Shavers. He was my consultant. He was my rock. He talked to me. I don't care if it was 4.30 in the morning or 3.30 in the morning, uh, up to and through uh, time for me to go into a meeting or something to keep my head level. And obviously Marvin Lewis and sometimes Mike Zimmer, they were there for me. But at the same time, Dr. Shavers, he did everything for me, and he's the reason why I was able to come out of the situation and not be totally depressed. Man, I mean, I'm I'm grateful for that, and I see I, I'm seeing these clippings with you, right? Uh, training down there in Florida, these kids. Uh, I mean, the energy you have. I mean, you look like you have 20 years of coaching left in you. But my <laughs> last, <laughs> my last, my my last question for you, Coach, is how do we fix this? How do we fix this? How do we fix this issue going forward where, you know what I mean? You can walk in and say, here, here's my identity. Here's the offensive system that I run. And if we, we complement it with this kind of defensive system and special teams, you know, how, how can we come to a, in the end, be able to, you know, you be able just to come in with your, your philosophy and sit down and somebody actually respect your philosophy. I mean, what do you think we should do? as a world to fix this? Jerry, I appreciate you saying that and asking what should we do to fix this. I think the first thing is the people who are responsible need to be accountable and be very honest and forthcoming. I mean, the records that are in my possession, which will be revealed in my book, show by their own acknowledgement that the Browns are 95% responsible for that record. I mean, it, it just does. I have all that, you know? 
And, you know, people speculated that I'm just an, a, a bitter and angry that I, I was fired. Now and the team is doing well, far from it. You know, I knew uh, that they would be and should be succeeding now because it was all part of a plan. It was. But my reputation and career was ruined for the benefit of a plan that I knew nothing about and fought against. The coaches that worked for me and the players who played for me suffered in that plan too. The fans even suffered in that plan. So I would just hope the transparency of, of the organization being real and saying, he was right. Yeah, I mean, he was a part of it. We did have a huge, totally different plan. He did not know. We put him under the eight ball. And everybody now, I mean, I'm seen as a villain. I'm seen as toxic, you know, and none of that is the case. You know, I just want to, to me, for my career to be taken from me. And there's some other coaches that I, that work with me who are not working now. I just, I feel bad for them more so than me because they trusted me and brought their families and everything with me and gave me everything they had because they thought we were going to be in a great situation where we're going to have a chance to win and further our careers. And that wasn't the case. I hate that. That That's wrong. It's, it's, it's unique, right? Because I see that and, and, it's crazy, right? I mean, we, I, the Browns look the most, when you look at the Browns organization and seeing your situation to now, it looks like there was a, a bigger plan that wasn't really, that was behind the scenes. But it, it's crazy because you see that, you, you can kind of see that happening in the NFL. And like you said, you can't be playing, you can't be playing games with people's lives or careers. So uh, coach, I know that you're going to get back into the swing of things. Thank you so much for being so transparent with us. Um, thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys allowing me the platform to really start to tell what the story is. I mean, it just, it's just so obvious, you know, because Jimmy, Jimmy wasn't famous for firing head coaches with better records and less time. You know, if you really think about it, so why would he not keep me as a head coach, but also give me a contract extension? And why would he keep that a secret from everyone? Why wouldn't he just come out and say publicly what he said privately, okay? Why wouldn't Jimmy, Sasha, or Paul go to the public and discuss the details of their plans? Why wouldn't they explain how the black coach was the perfect fit for their plan? I hate to say it that way because that's the way I feel today because I don't think that's what have happened in other situation. I just, I just don't, okay? I mean, you go 8-8 eight and eight in, in Oakland, you become – Offensive coach of the year in Cincinnati. I mean, there's a reason why they wanted to hire me. I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, uh, but I just think it is what it is. I just want my name cleared because I think not only is it affecting me, I do believe it's affecting the other minority coaches who have a chance to come behind me because you were seen as a talented coach. Now, all of a sudden, the guy can't coach. Boy, it was toxic. It was a bad situation. Well, Cleveland was bad before I ever got there. And I came there to make it better. I didn't come there to make it worse. I came there to make it better. And now I end up with this record. I mean, no one's going to tell me that I can't coach or I don't know how to lead a team or that I don't know how to put people in position to have success. I've done it. But if you don't help me have success, it just doesn't work that way when you're at the top like that. You have to have support of the people who are making decisions within the organization. All right, coach. We just want to say thank you for joining us and, you know, let the audience know exactly how things were, the truth, 
which is the most important part out of everything. Any final thoughts before we let you go? No, I just, again, I think a lot of people will feel like, oh, maybe it's like I said earlier, sour grapes. It's not. It's, um, again, I think the only thing you have is your, your voice, right? You can't, you can't fight any other way and you can only fight the truth. You know, I just don't believe in doing things a different way than that. Anything I say and anything I feel I can back up with documentation and in anything that anybody wants. So uh, people can cannot believe this if they want. People say, well, you know, he was there. We've moved on. It, that's not the problem. The problem is a lot of people suffered behind this and that's not fair. And to me, it's kind of what our country has been dealing with for, for years. And here it is again in big business that people say, oh, that really doesn't go on. Yes, it does. It goes on everywhere. And it's amazing. All right, coach. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric acid. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric Acid.